0: Before we get started, I'm going to uh, start with a question this morning for you guys. Are there any phrases, like family phrases, that your family has passed down through the ages, like something that your family says or you remember from your family saying all the time and now you say because of, Sandy's already got one in her mind she's laughing about, so I'm excited to hear her share what this phrase is. she's not gonna do it what what a deadbeat (laughs) fabulous yep yep what a deadbeat just I bet he he probably got it from his dad who probably got it from his dad right I got what a bet what a deadbeat how about you Sam any any phrases that your family comment around your house would pass down none off the top of your head (laughs) <laughs> Can't say him. <them. laughs> Can't say him in church. Worse than you're a deadbeat. All right. All right. Okay. It shows us the level of of inherited phrases. This is good. Zychecks, checks any passed down phrases or phrases you have around your household that are always said, like "Dag Nabbit" or. My grandma would always say, "If somebody thought they were bigger, you know, they were too big for their britches." She always like, "Oh, that's <laughs> true." He thinks who the heck he is. <laughs> he thinks who the heck he is. Heck he is. That's awesome. <laughs> Mom, that's not even grammatically correct. Come on. <clears throat> Too, much Too much brains? Nice. Too much brains. Too much brains. It's never been a problem around my family. Too much brains. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for me, one of those phrases, the one we're sort of talking about today, it's called it's a it's the phrase good grief. My dad says good grief all the time, and I definitely inherited that. In fact, I said it this morning while I was trying to pack things up for church. Good grief, where's the, you know, whatever. Um, and, And you get that good grief in varying degrees, depending on, like, what situation it was. Like, if you made a mistake on a tax return he was filing or working on, good grief, you know, if the pokes, you know, cowboys are choking, which is typical, be, or if the refs were choking, it'd be like, good grief, those are, you know, um, anything, you know, you'd use this phrase, good grief, for all sorts of circumstances, and I find myself doing the same thing, you know, uh, coming across situations, and I'm like, good grief, good grief, you know, and so for me, good grief is, uh, is the phrase that's been inherited, and, uh, and we're actually going to talk about uh, good grief today. And so my inherited phrase is the title of our sermon this morning. So uh, before I get started, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us in our time together. God, we thank you for this time you've given us, and we thank you for uh, the things we've inherited from our families, uh, the good that you've passed down over the years. And Lord, help us learn from, uh, from maybe the not-so-good uh, attributes that we've inherited from our families and God, thank you that you have provided for the inheritance of sin that we have ancestrally through Jesus. Lord, you've given us freedom from that in him, and, and uh, Lord, you acknowledge that, that we have inherited that, and, and that we are sinners, and that we are in need of you, God. So God, I pray this morning that this word would refresh us, and, and challenge us, and encourage us to, uh, to, to have good grief, to, uh, to grieve in a godly manner uh, the sin that is in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> we're talking about a, a particular type of grief today, and when I think about grief, I usually think about like someone passing away or, or uh, being in great sickness or illness. Um, today we're actually talking about a particular type of grief, uh, a grief that's always going to be with us, a grief that we've all inherited uh, from our families and, and ultimately from Adam. It's a grief caused by our sin against one another. The fact is, we sin against each other all the time. It constantly happens. We're never going to be rid of it until, until the end of the age when Jesus comes and restores uh, the kingdom and, uh, and, and welcomes us into heaven. And then there'll be no pain or suffering or, or sinning against one another. We'll be in full relationship. But until that time, we're always kept with this grief that is caused by our sin against one another. <clears throat> and so we're going to talk about that throughout this chapter. For the past five chapters, Paul has been defending his authority uh, as as a sent one from God, and explaining the new covenant message that he's proclaiming and and preaching, as well as the ministry that we all partake in, which is the ministry of reconciliation, um, a ministry that's very tied up in in the topic of today. Um, so today we'll see that Paul wraps up his reasoning for sending this letter, which he actually began in chapter two. So we got to chapter two, and then he went on a five chapter defense. Uh, Offshoot uh, talking about his apostolic authority uh, and defending that to them, and then also declaring that they too are ministers of reconciliation. And so today he's picking up back in chapter two, back with chapter two, where he was expressing why he was actually sending the letter. And the reason he was sending the letter was this because after rebuking a man in their community uh, for doing wrong, the Corinthians have not restored the man. So they've, they've followed Paul's advice to rebuke this man who has done wrong in their community, but now they've ostracized him and not welcomed him back into fellowship. Paul says, you know, it's good that you've rebuked this man of his sin because I asked you to do that. So thank you for, for doing that and acknowledging the sin. But now we, we are under reconciliation. And so in reconciliation, once you have rebuked and the man has repented, then there's this reconciliation that occurs and this man should be welcomed back into fellowship. And now he's encouraging him, Hey, don't, he's, the, the punishment is done. You've completed the punishment. Now bring him back into fellowship with you uh, so he can be part of the community again. <clears throat> so Paul here throughout the passages is expressing some great joy to the Corinthians about, uh, about how this has been handled and about this situation because they have finally responded well to some of his uh, rebuke and some of his uh, correction that he's provided to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians have plenty of correction to go around, as we learned in 1 Corinthians. Uh, they, they've done a lot that Paul has had to address from their culture. So uh, first we're going to look at why Paul is rejoicing, uh, so Paul's joy, and then we're going to talk about the good grief uh, that, that, I, that I referenced earlier. So first, why is Paul rejoicing in this, uh, in this chapter? I'm going to go ahead and read verses 2 to 7 and 13 to 16. It says this, Make room in your hearts for us, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We take advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you uh, was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. The first thing we see in in the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage is that Paul is expressing great joy. I don't know if you counted the times he said joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice over and over and over again and expressing his confidence in uh, in the Corinthians. We see that Paul is joyful about something. And uh, this is important because most of our letters from Paul to the Corinthians are about "You, you need to fix this, you need to fix that, you need to fix this, you need to fix that. And so when he stops for a long passage and says, I'm joyful, I'm joyful, I'm joyful, I'm rejoicing and expressing that the way he has, uh, we should take note of that. And so we're going to look at a few things here. Why is Paul rejoicing? There are a few reasons. The first reason is this. He's rejoicing over Titus. Uh, he is refreshed by uh, the Corinthians' response to Titus, as well as being re- reunited with Titus. Uh, the fact is, back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we saw that, that um, Paul... Um, was on his journey, and his initial intent was to come through Corinth and see the Corinthians and, and uh, meet with them. But because of what he had heard from Titus before, he decided to go a different route because he, he knew, we've talked about this, he, he, uh, it would be a difficult thing for him to go in person. So he sent a, a, a strong letter to them instead saying, you guys need to fix this up. And we don't have that letter now, uh, but what we know is that he was on his journey And he was to meet Titus in a city called Troas. And when he got to Troas, Titus was not there. And Paul says in uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. He'd been looking for Titus for a long time. He was anxious to hear the response of the Corinthians to this severe letter that he had sent by Titus. So he had sent this letter through Titus to the Corinthians, and he was hoping to hear, you know, what has come of this? How has this happened? And we're supposed to meet in Troas. He was torn up by this letter, okay? This was a very uh, difficult letter for him to send. It was another rebuking letter, and so he was concerned that how, how they received this letter. Um, Paul cares deeply for the Corinthians, and he, he was hoping that they would respond well to this because there was so much Im- Im- implicated in it. And so when, when Titus came, Paul was rejoicing because finally he's reunited with, with Titus in Macedonia um, and refreshed by the response that they have given. In verses uh, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, that is, being reunited with him, like we've said, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This is important because Paul has been been cast in a negative light by those other people who have visited uh, Corinth and by people in Corinth itself. And so Paul has been defending, like he said, his his apostleship to him and, and defending his relationship with him and that God had sent him to them Um, and he's been defending that over and over again. And so to hear that the Corinthians still long for him and still have zeal for him must be so refreshing. Um, So he's refreshed by the the response that Titus brings from the Corinthians. He's refreshed by simply seeing his dear brother Titus again, who he has not seen. This moment brought um, brought such joy to him because we actually find out in this passage that uh, in verse eight, he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. He actually regretted sending this letter to them, the letter before this, to them. He was he was concerned about how what it was going to impact them, how it was going to impact them, and if they were going to respond well or not. He didn't know. He, he knew that he needed to send it, and he sent it, and after he sent it, he thought, uh, you know, have you ever sent an email off, you know. I just have this all the time. They're like, oh, I hope that goes over okay. You know, I hope they respond well to that. Um, it happened to Paul, except it wasn't instant. It was like slowly across the Mediterranean. How are they going to get it? And who knows how long he was waiting to find out, you know, and that's tearing him up inside to hear what their response is. <clears throat> so so Paul is refreshed by the fact that the, the, the Corinthians long for relationship with him still and have zeal for him, and that Titus has been there. This fact that the Corinthians have responding this way uh, and that Titus is back brings, brings Paul such joy in the midst of so much oppression. Listen to how he describes the oppressive affliction that he is in. <clears throat> he says again in verse 5, even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. That's important to say because Macedonia is where Philippi is, and Philippi is one of the churches that Paul had the most uh, cordial relationship, and the most good things to say are to the church in Philippi. And the he had great success there. And so to go back to Macedonia is like for him going back to a, a successful ministry that he was a part of him and being there and getting to fellowship. And so he thought Macedonia, it's a great home base. That's where I'm going to go during this time while I'm, you know, in the Mediterranean. And <clears throat> so he goes there and he says, even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. He was expecting rest there, but he didn't get it. So he's in affliction because of that. So not only that, but he goes on and says, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fighting within. They had pressure from outside them, weighing down on them uh, heavily. They had pressure from within, either doubts or regret about this letter or other things that were just tearing them up. He was afflicted in in every way um, in this. And so he's expressing, listen, I was in the depths in Macedonia. I thought I was going to be refreshed there. I was far from refreshed. I was totally not at rest. I was afflicted inside and out. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, bringing Titus and bringing good news that my dear friends, the Corinthians, care for me and and still have desire for relationship. I have zeal and are comforted uh, by this relationship. And so Paul is expressing he is absolutely rejoicing that there is hope for this relationship. The Corinthians, again, are longing, mourning, and zealous for Paul and his ministry among them. Paul spent 18 months with them initially when he planted that church, and this has been four or five years after that. And he's constantly, we, we know that he probably has sent four letters back and forth to them and made two visits uh, outside. I think he's made two visits total, the initial and another, and he's going to make a third. And so his relationship with the Corinthians is very dear to him, and he's passionate about them, and he's so refreshed that they too are still passionate about him and still value that relationship. Um, Paul is rejoicing over this hope that he has. In fact, he goes so far as to say in this section, it's important because it uh, keys up his continued hope for growth for the Corinthians. He says, at the end of this chapter, verse 16, uh, 15 and 16. Titus's affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Paul's confidence, his, he had regret because he didn't know if the Corinthians were going to respond well to this rebuke, but now they have responded well. And now Paul has confidence that they are on the right track, that they are seeking God, that they are uh, seeking this ministry of reconciliation and seeking to be part of it and and offering under the new covenant. so, So he rejoices because he has perfect confidence in them. So why was Paul's relationship with the Corinthians broken in the first place? And, and how has he come to such joy? How has this been restored? What has happened that has transpired to make this occur? Um, we're going to look now at verses 8 to 12 and, and talk about what is good grief. Because actually, the thing that brought joy to Paul and his relationship with the Corinthians was grief. Grief caused his joy. A good type of grief. There are two types of grief that we'll look at. Uh, godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief leads to life and worldly grief leads to death. And we'll look at that. Uh, So Paul had many things to to confront the Corinthians about, but one thing created significant division between him and the Corinthians. Uh, A man in their their community had sinned, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but a man in their community had sinned, okay? And it, it, it was either against Paul or against another in the community. And Paul took a stand against this person because of their sin, and said, you know, you've got to rebuke this guy. You've got to call out this sin. Like, this is, this is wrong. We have to, we have to acknowledge, acknowledge this. And, and a group of the Corinthians had come forth and said, you know, no, it's not a big deal, and sort of brushed it under the rug and ignored it and, and, and not confronted the sin that was there. And so the confront the, the Corinthians didn't rebuke him, and this caused strife between Paul and the young church. There were groups among the church that started to doubt whether Paul was actually an apostle or not, doubt his authority, and doubt that what he was saying was true. Uh, you know, Paul's ministry is very unique. He was a tent maker. He was traveling around uh, around uh, the Mediterranean, and, and in one place, at one time, and in one place at another, just moving all the time. Um, and he had a, a uh, like I said, tent making ministry, and And for the Corinthians, they sort of doubted his authority. They thought, well, if he has to work for himself, then maybe he's not really sent by God. Or maybe he's actually getting money through another channel and telling us that he's not receiving money from us. So he didn't take any money from the Corinthians. They actually sort of doubted whether he was being honest with them. And so all this, uh, you know, it was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. They had some doubts, and then this thing happened, and and caused lots of division between Paul and the Corinthians. Um, it shows us that, that one one instance of sin that isn 't confronted can cause off a, a huge divide in a relationship, especially when things haven 't been confronted well in the past so they, they're, they're concerned they 're wondering about paul 's authority at large they they end up rebuking the man at paul 's request and and they swing to the other, other direction, and, and instead of restoring him to fellowship, like I said, kept him out of fellowship. And that is what Paul has been confronting in this letter. Um, so in verses 8 to 12 now, we're going to see that they handled it well. They actually responded well to Paul's severe letter, his rebuke to them, and they, they responded with godly grief rather than worldly grief. Let's look at verses 8 to 12 now. H 12 says this, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So again, it's interesting, you know, there are there a number of things that were happening in this community that Paul was confronting, but he says, you know, I wrote to you about a specific instance, and the fact is, my writing to you about that instance, the instance almost doesn't even matter. What really matters is not the one who is wrong, or what, not the one who did the wrong, but how you're responding to the situation as a whole, because it shows your understanding of the gospel. Paul is trying to communicate to them that there is a, a need for a repentance, but there's also a need for restoration and bringing forth that reconciling relationship, and so uh, Paul is expressing that to them in this. Paul says two things: that there is godly grief, verse uh, verse ten. There is godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, and there is worldly grief that it produces death. And I'll say something from a literal, literary standpoint here. Uh, the text doesn't have the words for whereas worldly grief uh, produces, uh, the, produces unrepentance that leads to death, uh, but actually, given the structure of this verse, it's implied that the reverse is happening with worldly grief as to godly grief. So let me say that again. In godly grief, we see that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. In worldly grief... Even literarily, we should read this: um, worldly grief produces unrepentance that leads to death. Um, so there, there's sort of uh, two um, two statements, and 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 one of the one of the verbs, or one of the one of the components of it, is to be assumed in the second uh, second phrase of of the sentence. And so that's what's happening here uh, with worldly grief and godly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with regret. So let's look at that first. Um, Godly grief does two things. There's actually, there's always two people, two parties involved, right? Uh, When some sin has occurred, there's the one that's offended and the one that's the offender, right? There's one that's, you know, uh, that's done the sin and one that's been sinned against. And both of us have a responsibility in that case. Paul's responsibility to the Corinthians was what? To to call them out, to say, hey, guys, like, you're doing this wrong. Like, you need to repent. You need to acknowledge that this is happening. And they also needed to actually repent, right? Godly grief produces repentance. There's a grief that occurs when we realize we have done wrong, right? Like, when you do something wrong, when you offend somebody or say the wrong thing, uh, against them, or, uh, you know, you feel this guilt on you, right? You feel grief. That, that's sorrow that you have because of something that you have done. And when it's been brought to your attention, you feel that. And so that's what we're talking about here, this grief that occurs when, when we have that sorrow from offending a, a brother or sister in Christ, or just anybody, really. And so godly grief, though, produces repentance. That is, there are two, two components. It, it seeks repentance as directed by the Holy Spirit. So in Paul's case, he was grieved by this brokenness of the situation. But he sought out repentance because he loves the Corinthians. He had to. He had to seek out repentance. I don't want our relationship to go unto death. I want it to remain and and be, be full. And so he seeks repentance from them, led by the Holy Spirit. And we saw throughout his story that he even had doubts throughout the process of that. I mean, it was a long process, probably a year or more long process of him you know, sending this letter and then waiting for a response from it. And so the process was huge for him, but he was directed by the Holy Spirit to do it. He obeyed the Holy Spirit and trusted in that. He sought out the repentance. Second, in godly grief, we repent <laughs> as directed by the Holy Spirit. You know, it, it's actually not Paul's job to bring conviction on the the Corinthians. That's the the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings conviction in our lives for things that we have done wrong. And so Paul's job wasn't really to bring the conviction. It was to submit the facts, put them before him. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict uh, the Corinthians of this sin. And so so the Corinthians did. They repented as convicted and and as uh, directed by the Holy Spirit. Um, The fact is, godly grief produces a repentance. And when you have repentance over a situation, and when you've offended someone, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, probably you have, uh, when you've had a divide or a brokenness in a relationship, it feels so good when that's restored, right? Like something that felt like it was never going to come back because of the brokenness of the relationship. When you come back in and can sit across the table or come and embrace in a big hug, you know, that is a huge feeling of relief. You, you, You almost don't realize how big the weight is on your shoulders until it happens and it's gone and you're like, oh, it's so good to be reunited. I've been carrying this and I didn't even know how heavy it was. It was so heavy and now it's restored. That's what godly grief produces. It produces repentance that leads to salvation and life. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation and life. The fact is that we've been reconciled to God So we should be marked by reconciliation to one another. Reconciliation requires repentance that's produced by a godly grief. Reconciliation requires repentance produced by a godly grief. So there's godly grief and then there's worldly grief. Worldly grief produces an unrepentance. In worldly grief, there are two things that you do to worldly grief. You either ignore it or you fixate on it. Both lead to death and unrepentance. Both produce unrepentance and lead to death. Ignoring it, uh, you know, when you, when, when you ignore the relationship. So for the Corinthians, Paul sends this letter. If they just ignored it, what would happen? Paul would never hear from them, never have any response. Their relationship would die. And the Corinthians actually, they might get along happily just fine the rest of their lives. But something would be broken inside and they, just, they would just suppress it and, and ignore it. And, and so you could take that route when, when confronted with sin that, that needs repenting. Um, you could take that route. You could ignore it and, and suppress it and, and then walk away. Or you can also fixate on it. And because of a, a lack of boldness or a lack of courage or a lack of uh, uh, thought that, that something could work out, you never pursue correction or never pursue repentance. You could fixate on it, uh, on the grief, leading to brokenness in your spirit. Um, <clears throat> See, repenting does a couple of things. It, it restores the relationship, but also restores a broken piece of you. Like if there's brokenness there, it's, it's hurting you. And if you fixate on it, it's actually gonna continue to eat at your soul. Like, I don't know if you've experienced that. Like when you've wronged someone, man, it just will fester there until you resolve it. And, and some people are better about like suppressing it and move it on and say, oh, whatever, no big deal. And some people like, they get stuck on it, and it really drains and, and, and literally produces death inside of you and inside of that relationship. So worldly grief leads to unrepentance that brings forth death. Um, it's just like this. It's just like taking water away from a plant, right? When you take water away from a plant, what's going to happen? It's not going to grow, right? And eventually, it's going to die, right? It stops growing. Its its growth is impeded. It slows down its growth, and then eventually, if it doesn't ever get water, it's going to die. And in the same way, if you if you remove repentance from the equation of your relationships, it's like taking away water. It's it's going to lose its life because of our sin, and it's going to die. Sometimes we like to just pretend that everything's okay and everything just rolls off our back, you know, and nothing ever bothers us. Uh, but the truth is it just builds up. It's really not water that you put on your back that rolls off. It's more like rocks that you're just chucking in a, in a satchel back there that are always going to stay with you. And so, um, so repentance is a key source of life in our relationships because we're going to hurt each other all the time. We're broken. We always uh, hurt one another Uh, And so we need that spirit of repentance unto one another that life could could take root in that. When we ignore sin and division among us, we inhibit further growth in our relationships. This is why Paul is so joyful about the Corinthians. And that's why he says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Paul knows that because the Corinthians have responded well and have repented and come back and said, yes, we are zealous for you, Paul. He knows that he can move forward with discipling them and pointing them in the direction that they ought to go in their relationship with Jesus. So much so that he says, I have perfect confidence in you. This is an important passage for our whole study of 2 Corinthians because, um, because the Corinthians have responded Paul can continue a relationship with them. And the fact is, the Corinthians really, really need a relationship with Paul uh, and and Jesus' ministry through Paul to them because the rest of the chapter is going to be devoted to things that Paul still needs to confront in the Corinthians. So you spent seven chapters (laughs) just talking about the situation and his authority and now his perfect confidence in them that. I have complete confidence in you. That you are on this journey. That life will spring forth from this relationship that we have, and that we will go forward. And we are, we desperately need that in our relationships. We need to have uh, this uh, restored relationship and confidence in one another that we're going in the same direction. So, this message has been for anyone who's wronged somebody or been wronged by someone, right? And there are a number of things we can take with this, so let's, let's go with these things. First this, that Paul found joy despite deep affliction in his life. Paul, was, Paul is joyous about things that matter. The afflictions that he was facing in Macedonia were external to him, and, and some were internal, but ultimately they were not eternal. And, um, and Paul is joyous in the eternal, eternal news that the corinthians are responding well i mean paul literally was probably doubting whether jesus was actually doing a work in this church or not and so to have them respond well this is huge for him because he knows yes god is still working there and god is still uh, at work in corinth and and, and moving in their hearts paul found deep joy in the midst of overwhelming affliction second this We need to let the Holy Spirit guide us and lead us in confronting and responding to sin. We need to let the Holy Spirit convict us about when we are to confront it, and we need to let the Holy Spirit convict us about when we need to repent of it. The Holy Spirit is our uh, guide, our convictor, our counselor in these things. Third, this good grief, good godly grief, is a grief that leads to repentance, and that repentance leads to salvation and life among us. The reconciliation that Jesus has given us with God is the reconciliation we should pursue with one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Jesus and what he's done for us. We thank you that because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we can have reconciliation with you. That that you didn't stand by when we were broken. You actually loved us so much that you sent your son to us to make a way for us to be restored to you. Reconciliation is at the core of who you are. You desire it with your creation. And so, God, we're thankful for your initiative in that. We're thankful for... Uh, for it personally because of the salvation that's come to our souls because of that. We're also thankful for it uh, pedagogically, Lord, that that we can learn how to to initiate that in our lives and in our relationships, that it's important to do that, God. So God, I pray that we would follow your lead and Lord, that we would seek out reconciliation with those around us. God, we pray that, we would uh, grab hold of repentance, that we would know its weight and its importance and that we would seek it and that we would do it, God. Lord, we thank you for all that you do, for the life that you give us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.